0: Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need to know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high yield, leverage loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Casia Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loan supporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at trends in docs changes, or payer ESG issues and food inflation. But first, the Levfin Wrap. It's risky business this week with the drip of issuance being exclusively in the gambling industry. 888 is issuing senior secured notes and senior secured FRNs in euros of an undetermined amount alongside a 500 million USD denominated TLB. We've heard the deal is struggling due to the impact of ESG on CLO managers as well as the threat of new gambling regulation that was recently linked by the Times. In addition, Gaming One, a Belgian gaming company, is issuing a 300 million euro TLB talked at 525 over with a 95 OID. The company is expected to struggle also due to the same concern with gambling and ESG as well as a high single jurisdiction risk as it's more than 60% exposed to the Belgian market. Next up, I have the Covenant close-up, and with me today we've got the Senior Covenant Analyst, Brian Dearing. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks very much, Cap.
0: And the unbelievable Legal Analyst, Alice Hollian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So. I believe we've got a lot of announcements to make about Doc's changes today here at Ninefin, and we've got a little bit of information as well since we put out a report on the topic, um, put together by Olivia Mantok, the great legal analyst, and uh, and the lovely Alice Holling as well here. Um, so yeah, Brian, please announce what you have to announce.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Kat. Um, yeah, so one of the really important things in uh, the legal space for, for high yield bonds is covenant pushback. And it's understanding what investors actually care about, um, what they push back on, and what changes are made um, to deals between marketing and pricing of those deals. So what we built was uh, a covenant pushback tool, which you can now find under the Legals tab on Ninefin.com, um, which actually goes into detail on every single material change that was made uh, between marketing and pricing uh, in 2021 and 2022 for European-sponsored deals. And we hope this will be helpful for all of our clients, um, letting people know what was pushed back on, how it was pushed back on. And specifically, you can click through the tool into our Covenant Explorer, which will show you the actual text changes using our redlining tool. So hopefully this is going to be really useful. And we took this one step further and also published on Wednesday this week a trends piece where we highlighted some of the key points that came out of this analysis that we did.
2: So to sort of add some color to what um, Brian has just said, you know, twenty in 2021, 21% of sponsor deals experienced um, covenant changes before pricing. So that's about 16% out of the 76 um, sponsor deals that were issued and that we um, looked at. And I think it's surprising that the number of sponsor deals experiencing pushback is, is so low. And of course, we don't know what was removed during pre-marketing, but I think it is a testament to the market in, in 2021. Um, and in terms of sort of like the key battlegrounds, you won't be surprised to hear that EBITDA ad backs were sort of hot on the pushback agenda. And five deals that came to market with sort of uncapped EBITDA backs and also subject to sort of no time horizon were then subsequently subject to a synergy cap and time horizon for the purpose of calculations. Um, But if you put this into context, you still have 62% of the sponsored sort of European high yield deals in 2021 um, with having sort of uncapped synergies and 27% 27% of the deals had neither a cap nor a time limit on synergies. Um, and I think there are also questions over sort of the meaningfulness of, of these time limits, which I think, Brian, you wanted to elaborate on.
1: Yeah, so, so as Alice said, there's sort of 60% had no cap on the synergies, but the inverse is true, where about 60% had uh, a cap on the time horizon. And so what does this actually mean? It just means that the issuer reasonably anticipated in most deals um, that they would be able to, take actions that would are expected to result in whatever the synergy that they're adding back is. So if they say that they're expected to take an action that will result in the synergy within 24 months, that doesn't even mean that they will see the synergy within 24 months. That could be some you know, unknown time in the future. They simply have had, needed to have taken the actions during that period. So we kind of question in the article whether there's actually that much value in it, especially when you're looking at deals that might only have you know a five-year tenor.
2: Yeah, um, something that has been sort of historically limited to the most aggressive deals was ratio-based restricted payments and permitted investments capacity. So being able to make PIs or RPs subject to sort of meeting a ratio test. and, And nowadays, it's not so much... Um, whether the deal has has this when it comes to market, but wherever, where it sits relative to the opening leverage. So, you know, how much deleveraging is required to access this ratio-based restricted payments or, or permitted investment basket. Um, and it is an area where we saw some sort of successful investor pushback in, in, in 2021. So um, six sponsor deals saw their RP leverage baskets tightened during marketing and four of those also saw their um, permitted investment sort of leverage baskets um, tightened.
1: If you look at the data, that RPs for ratio-based baskets require a little bit more deleveraging than the sort of uh, accompanying ratio-based basket for a permitted investment. But we just want to say that I think people should be a little bit careful about this. That even if the RP for you know on, you know any kind of dividend is a little bit tighter. You could use PIs in many deals in the same situation that you would have just made a regular dividend. There's a bit of an erosion between these two concepts. So it's just to say to be a little bit careful when looking at the data um, and remarking that the PIs is actually a little bit uh, easier to access for issuers. Um, and then the last thing I was going to say is that what we saw in the pushback is that it typically just moves the needle for when they can access these baskets closer to the market average um, and we didn't really see it p- sort of punishing them. So it didn't seem that by trying to push for a little bit of a better leverage uh, ratio, they weren't later then uh, forced to have a worse one than the uh, market average.
2: And Another area that saw some pushback was the available RP capacity amount. So, you know, this provision allows the issuer to convert RP capacity into debt capacity, either on a one-to-one basis or perhaps more aggressively on a, a one-to-two basis. And its presence in the docs is notably increasing sort of year on year, with it appearing in 37% of the deals. Um, in in 2021 compared to thirteen percent in in 2020 but it's not all doom and gloom you know we uh we've seen it removed in two d de- two deals and tightened in three. um and I think there's sort of some questions again around you know should it be on a uh, on a one to two basis
1: yeah and I think the point here is you know available RP capacity amount typically matches the contribution debt amount with the idea being that if you could um You know, send money out uh, as a restricted payment and then contribute it back into the company and incur 200% of uh, the amount as debt. Then, well, why shouldn't you be able to just convert the RP capacity directly into debt capacity at one to two? And we kind of question in the article whether or not um, that actually makes sense. And in ArcaPlanet, we saw that it was on a 1 to 1.5 ratio uh, for the available RP capacity amount, as opposed to 1 to 1.2 for its contribution debt amount. And the argument probably is that while it's functionally the same the way I described it, actually, in practice, um, you would need cash or you would need an asset that you could dividend out to create contribution debt uh, capacity if you were going that way. Um, and so if you're going to just flip theoretical RP capacity, then maybe we shouldn't flip it at the exact same rate and it should be uh, potentially dinged a little bit. And so we just kind of query this, but we only saw this in in one deal. So it's certainly not uh, not the trend or the norm. Um, I think just a few other things as we wrap up, just to say that uh, there are what we call honorable mentions, a few other things that received a decent amount of pushback, but not that much. Uh, we saw super growers... Um, in about 18% of sponsored deals, and they were only pushed back on and removed in two deals. And then portability, we've, we've seen now in 70% of sponsored deals. And we note that this is usually at uh, set one, a quarter turn of EBITDA below the opening leverage. Um, and this means the inverse of the other things we were talking about. It means that they can actually lever up a bit and still access portability, um, which is uh, becoming normal. Um And then I think the last thing that we were going to mention is that some of the pushback is in a little bit more complicated, and it's in the ratio calculations. And this is just, there's been some movement now towards excluding certain debt um, that a company incurs from its ratio calculations. So for example, in Golden Goose, the RCF drawings um, were going to be excluded, but that was pushed back on. And in Multiversity, we saw a very aggressive approach, which was all the debt baskets were excluded from the ratio calculations. Um, which would mean your your ratio for the for the covenant purposes is completely different than your actual ratio. Um, but that didn't survive. Although two weeks after that deal, it did go through on Modulaire. So it's a space to watch. Um, but I think that wraps it up. Uh, we encourage people to check out our uh, covenant changes tool on the website. And we also encourage people to check out the trends piece.
0: Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment. Today, I have with me Daniel Power, one of our new ESG analysts. Thank you so much for being with us, Dan. Thank you. Um, You have done an incredible piece on Alpea, uh, a French care home. You did an ESG quick take for it. Concerns about Alpea's operations emerged in January 2022 following the publication of the book The Gravediggers. In response, the French government filed a criminal complaint about Orpea while an independent audit verified and confirmed some of the accusations levelled in the book. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about those results. But first, a quick overview of the allegations to date from Dan.
3: The book, uh, The Gravediggers, it framed uh, an image of Orpea as kind of conspiring to uh, provide inadequate care to its patients And then also from the governance side in terms of misreporting numbers, uh, misreporting surplus budgets that were received from the government, um, not having properly trained staff. Whether or not this was a systematic approach to actually do this is questionable, but... What the audits show is that there was a lot of negligence, regardless. Um, so, for example, there was there's examples of of employees and staff who were registered who maybe did not exist. Uh, there was there was people who were tasked to do certain jobs or employees tasked to do certain jobs who didn't have the proper qualifications to. There was uh, discrepancies in terms of uh, accounting. And uh, payments to intermediaries as well as suppliers. So the the list of the, the allegations and the lists of uh, accused wrongdoings on behalf of Arpea is pretty great. There's been some journalistic reports into the company as well. So in May, uh, investigate Europe. Released uh, a report looking at the company, and then a subsequent one in June, and it was focused on the the shadowy parallel structures that Orpea has been using to not only pay commissions to high ranking employees, but also to conduct transactions uh, with a reduction with a reduced tax burden. And there's been accusations that a lot of those, those actions constitute uh, tax fraud. And so I think those will also be part of the French government's Uh, investigation into the company. It's also noteworthy that uh, a few weeks ago, Orpea's uh, headquarters were raided, and then 15 of their regional offices were also um, raided as well.
0: Um, This is much more of a social and governance-related issue, but is there anything that you'd flag on the environmental side?
3: So I think that this is kind of universal across uh, the healthcare industry, is that with COVID-19, you've had a a massive increase and of course, waste, uh, PPE. So Orpea, Orpea's waste and potential hazardous waste has gone has skyrocketed over the past year, but that's expected. Um, whether they've stated that this is not something that they're looking to reduce, but I, that would just be one thing to have. To have in mind, for, in comparison to its competitors, Orpea is pretty much on average with with its competitors, Corian as well as Sea. So there's not too much there that that should be flagged. It's much more on the social and environmental side.
0: Speaking of the competitors, we we know that um, bond prices for lots of lots of the competitors have done terribly since these allegations came out. What 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 do you think's the future for the sector?
3: I think that Orpea highlights an ongoing issue and universal issue within the for-profit uh, care home industry especially in France. So in so the main criticism or one of the main criticisms against the for-profit uh, care home sector has just been the role of private equity and, and their and their involvement within this sector so especially uh, regarding cost cutting and uh, burdening a lot of these as a result of burdening a lot of these companies with debt um, orpa is not held by a private equity firm but a lot of the issues that are associated with private equity held um, care homes are also appear in the case of orpaea so you have issues around or accusations around cost cutting providing inadequate care to um to employees as well as residents, and and interestingly, this is quite this is within the French care home uh, sector. You have really high rates, uh, really high like sick rates, uh, and this has been noted as as a result of the really harsh working conditions um, and, and understaffing that occur uh, within this industry.
0: So you know how uh, we, there's obviously major exclusions and uh, investors look for red flags when it comes to ESG, you know, you can't invest in a gambling company, you can't invest in tobacco. Do you think it, it's possible that investors might not be able to look at, for example, French care homes in the future?
3: I think I I, I don't think that. I think that the French care home is currently at the beginning of a reckoning. So you have, as you mentioned, uh, bond prices and share prices across the French care home industry absolutely plummeted after the release of the gravediggers. Um but also in addition to that, Corian, uh, one of our Orpea's key competitors, uh, there was a, a complaint launched by families of residents at the at the care home. Uh, and then in addition to that, you're also seeing the the French government. So I mean the the, the these revelations that occurred at Orpea have have made it to like the upper echelons of, of political power. So uh, you've seen French President Emmanuel Macron comment on this. This was a talking point during the French presidential election. And the French political establishment has been very clear that this is an issue uh, that they're, uh, that they're very hard on addressing.
0: Next up, we have the deep discussion where we discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. So today we're going to be talking about food inflation and uh, its effect on a number of credits in our market. Uh, This is one that we've been covering a lot at Ninefin. Um, Food inflation has leapt a great deal across the Eurozone, but also in the UK, uh, leaping to 4.3% in May from 3.5% in April. Uh, in the UK according to the British retail consortium and that's across uh, fresh food and ambient food such as store cupboard staples. Uh, A good number of the issues that have been negatively affected in this sector are also in France. And uh, food inflation there has now risen in May by 4.3%, up from 3.8% in April, according to Trading Economics. The sector has, on the whole, been thrashed, with 23 of the 47 loans in the sector on the fin database, now indicated below 90. There are many reasons as to why the industry is suffering, not least in the UK uh, due to Brexit and the rising cost of labour inflation all over Europe. Laura, what's the big... Big reason that I'm missing here.
4: Well, obviously, uh, the big one is the war in Ukraine. At the moment, around a quarter of uh, Europe's supply of nutrients using fertilisers come from uh, either Ukraine or Russia, as well as 30% of the world's wheat supply and 80% of sunflower oil as well. And these are the components that we're seeing um, as major raw materials in some of the names that have been really hit hard in um, So kind of the food names, particularly in France, which we're going to be focusing on, tend to be um, ones covering things like baked goods, where wheat,
0: oil, butter are really crucial. We looked at the Ninefin Loan Screener, and some of the most heavily affected names do have lots of exposure to those raw materials. So the companies that have fallen more than 10 points in the last month include ProSol, Labury, Upfield and Wessonen. Uh, But there have been other names that we have followed closely that also are affected by commodities like animal feed, wheat and oil prices, including Sorelia, Labyrinth and Biscuit International. Laura, I think you've got updates on a couple of those.
4: Yeah, so... um... Biscuit International, this is, is one that, that people tell us is getting quite hammered. Um, even disproportionately to the other food names people have in their portfolio. Q1 results for, for this company and for, for many across the sector have been, have been very weak. Um, there was a 64% drop in EBITDA year on year for Biscuit International in, in Q1 this year. Um, Despite being bolstered by the acquisition of Continental Bakeries in the quarter, you're still seeing a huge impact from, you can guess from the name, Biscuits, the kind of inputs that it needs. Um, And people are quite concerned about pass through um, abilities here which is obviously very crucial and a real deciding factor for buysiders who are looking at their portfolios at the moment and seeing what names they think and weather. management have previously been quite um, bullish on their ability to pass through and that hasn't materialized in the quarterly earnings so people are, are remaining quite cautious on this name and, and how they think it can actually stack up on continued pressure with um, pain expected to get worse in q2 before um, it improves in q3 the Cerulean name has been a really interesting one that we've been covering at the moment. This again is Baked Goods, so all the materials we've been talked about where Corsi um, but Darber fell 38% to just 12 million back in uh, in Q1 of this year. This is a name that needed to get a PG loan uh, supported by the French government, which was something they put in place during COVID but have allowed um, companies to continue accessing even after the pandemic has Maybe kind of wound down, <laughs> um, unlike some other jurisdictions. Surrealia um, approached its lenders for a covenant waiver, hoping it get raised a hundred million um, through this this channel of funding. Lenders managed to get that reduced to hundred million, um, as they were worried about uh, about maturity uh, risk here. Originally, the loan was going to mature before the uh, the term loan B that's out there. That that has also been changed, and uh, sponsor Ardian is coming with a twenty five million equity injection. 10 million, of which uh, is now going to be upfront after some lender pushback, and the rest, which is subject to a liquidity threshold.
0: Apparently, that name has gathered some support now that it's in the 70s with the PGE loan and the RCF sorted out as well. Uh, The 382.5 million uh, Euro TLB paying 475 over is now indicated at 76, according to Ninefin pricing data, and that's for a B3 credit. Chris, what's your perspective on this sector? What do you think are the main issues? And is it just the Russia and Ukraine conflict?
5: Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is just the overall weakness in the loan market, and these seem to be names that easy to sell because they do have you know lots of headwinds um, i suppose with a name like Cerelia when you're getting into that point where there is concern and you know you have got the pge loan which comes in which obviously a french don't get guaranteed loan but you've got you know potential issues in terms of liquidity i mean the sponsors stepped in and you know maybe has stabilized it but if you're a clo holder you've now got a piece of paper that's trading below 80 and you actually have to mark to market and there's still looking at the rating agency's view on Cerelia, that you're getting quite close to being you know, rated triple C and you could be you know, stuck in that sort of triple you know, C bucket. So that's, again, a bit more pain for a for CLO. I suppose the other thing to say is that there are some other names out there which you know also have been beaten up pretty hard. I mean, they don't have any upcoming issues per se, apart from they are being hit by the same issues, such as Upfield. Um, but, you know, they don't have any sort of immediate sort of liquidity triggers or anything that's likely to uh, to happen in the next sort of two years. And you're having those names also trading, you know, at significantly lower levels as well. So you do have a fair number of, of sort of names to pick and choose from as well. So uh, And that might just be another issue is that you have a lot of names in that sort of sector. So people are maybe being a little bit more selective.
4: Yeah. yeah and also um, a lot of these names are talking about their facilities are quite small sub-500 term loans that are... Proving to be very liquid, so we know a lot of investors who are actually trying to sell out of these, but can't
5: find any buyers. Um, I think one thing we haven't talked about, and I think Laura knows more about this than I do, is this issue about the renegotiation between suppliers and companies in France in terms of the fact that you can only do that once a year in February, which for timing perspective, is awful for them this year because all the big moves happened after the the war in Ukraine started at the end of uh, end of February.
4: Yeah, definitely. That's one of the reasons that we've been focusing on these these French names, um, because it's got this unusual negotiation system. The French government did allow for an extra negotiation to take place in June, with companies expecting to feel the the impacts of that from July onwards. But if you compare it to to food names like Upfield Flora in the UK, which can negotiate dynamically. Um, this has put all of these companies in, in a real tough spot and you can see that with how disproportionately it, their instruments are, are being affected and, and
0: how much uh, brain space they're taking up in their investors minds. Speaking of upfield flora Chris you know this credit extremely well what issues is it facing?
5: Well I mean I suppose this has been a name that everyone's looked at because it's a, a huge debt stack it's um, you know, a name that's been over for a while it's been dis- performing badly even sort of Prior to you know the issues that we've had over the last sort of six to twelve months, given the, the difficulties and the spin out from Unilever and it hasn't sort of gone as well for sponsor KKR as they would like, um, I suppose the two big things for them are the issues with issue with sunflower oil. You know, Ukraine is a large exporter of sunflower oil, and effectively Flora wasn't able to get any of that for its uh, for its products, mm. so they've had to switch to palm oil, change some of their recipes. Um, they also have had some issues in terms of lags and sort of negotiations, and they've they've done relatively well to sort of try and alleviate that within the last quarter. So the last quarter's numbers did show some sign, signs of stabilisation there. Um, bizarrely, for a company that's not uh, a dairy products company, it's the opposite. It's very reliant on what's actually happening with butter prices. So the whole idea is with private label Margarine margarine producers, effectively, it's about the substitution effect and you can actually start to push through price rises if dairy prices for butter actually are moving higher. So that's something that, you know, analysts are looking at very, very closely. Um, The company is very levered. I think there are some concerns about, you know, what would happen maybe a couple of years out um, if it can't get down below that sort of eight to nine times levered level. Um, you know, there's been a few people looking at the docs just to see if there's anything there that the sponsor might be able to do to protect, maybe potentially protect itself or to take some money out of the group. Um, so I think that's what a lot of the investors are looking at at the moment is just, you know, looking at sort of worst case scenarios about, you know, at the moment you're actually owning something, which is actually giving you a yield well into the sort of mid teens without any default triggers. So that looks quite good, but you know, they're just looking at the worst case scenarios at the moment. Just in case, you know, there might be something else that might come down the line.
4: Yeah, we're hearing um, a bit of division depending on where people are invested with the name as well. The loan investors tend to be more positive um, and see this as a a large name um, with good pass-through power where they should be able to sit through all this turbulence and emerge out the other end. It's the note holders um, who are are much more concerned and wondering what the fate of, of their investments might
5: be. Yeah, I suppose the final thing on that on Upfield as a name is also about its hedging. It's just trying to work out whether it's actually got ahead of the curve on the hedging or not. Because for a lot of these companies, I think they did quite well on their hedging, maybe in the last six to twelve months. But the difficulty is when those hedges roll off, and then you actually have to re-hedge at you know higher prices. So you might be getting benefits at the moment coming through from the fact that you are hedging, uh, and you'll still be able to push prices through. But you might that might snap back the other way in the next sort of few months.
4: And it also has the benefit of being pretty essential products like margarine, um, which consumers are going to continue to demand even in a cost of living crisis even later in the year when when fuel costs start hitting people as well. Um, and it's even, as, as Chris mentioned, the cheaper alternative. Uh, so there could be a slight boost there people are hoping. This is the opposite from names like uh, library, the which is another French name where which produces a lot of sort of luxury food goods where people might in fact step away more. Um, If they're feeling the pinch, that's one that reported a a 0.4 EBITDA uh, for Q1, 96% drop. So clearly a lot of stress
0: there. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9Fin. Many thanks to Brian and to Alice, to Laura and to Chris, and of course to you two, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.